This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 1st, 2023. Current federal tax developments is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Ed Zoller is again coming to you from here in Phoenix. We're going to talk about what's going on this week in the area of federal taxes. This week, we'll start with the discussion of yet another charitable remainder annuity trust case. But in this case, we're not talking about a drafting work or problem that undid a crat. We're talking about, in this case, a marketed crat, uh, basically tax shelter that turned out to not really work. And we'll talk a little bit about this because it's not the first time we've talked about this structure. We talked about it back in 2020. We'll also talk about an IRS notice, a couple of IRS uh, items going out, clarifications going out, that discuss the fact that a change of, of the protocol underlying a cryptocurrency from proof of work to proof of stake does not itself create a taxable event. So we'll talk a little bit about that. There's some concerns there because we've seen various cryptocurrencies move from proof of work to proof of stake as their way to basically get the ledger updated and uh, reward people for doing that kind of work. So bottom line, uh, we at least have the good news that the IRS does not consider that to be a taxable event when a currency changes. Also in the cryptocurrency realm, we have an IRS notice updating the 2014 notice that indicates that yes, the IRS is aware that at least two countries have now recognized Bitcoin as legal tender, but that doesn't fundamentally change the IRS position that that still doesn't make them foreign currency for US tax purposes. Rather, they're just standard property and subject to the standard capital gain or loss rules, not the special rules that would impact foreign currency. And finally, we'll discuss a case that I mentioned, I think last week, uh, where a taxpayer was attempting to claim a deduction for a fairly large uh, payoff of a legal claim and they were trying to do a cashier's check, get it deducted in the year 2012, we'll discover that unfortunately for the taxpayer, due to the facts of the case, how things rolled out, even though it was pretty clear that was going to settle the case, they still couldn't get a deduction in 2012 because of the situation underlying it. So with that, let's start with the uh, charitable remainder annuity trust case. This is the case of Gerhardt versus Commissioner. And this is a reported tax court case, 160 TC number nine, that came out on April the 20th, 2023. Now, there actually was a similar case that came down last year that was not issued as a reported tax court case. I, I guess the theory being that since this was the second case that came up, that came from the same set of promoters with the same attorney representing the taxpayer, that apparently maybe the tax court decides, okay, we got a signal clearly that our position is this doesn't work, so quit bringing it back to us. We'll just kind of see what they do. But let's talk about the whole idea here of a charitable remainder annuity trust. And we discussed it a couple of weeks ago with that CRAT that had a provision that ended up disqualifying the CRAT. And it was a provision that never actually made a difference. But CRATs are very fragile devices. You have to get them right. Generally, you set up a charitable remainder annuity trust. It is one of the few times where you can give a charity a partial interest in an asset and still be able to claim a deduction. In this case, it's a future interest in an asset. Uh, you basically make a contribution of assets to a concept of a charitable remainder annuity trust. Now, in theory, it could be cash, but that's not normally what we contribute. 
generally you're contributing things that would create taxable income. If the taxpayer, you know, actually had to sell the asset, convert to cash. So we contribute things that have built-in gains. Now the trust itself is considered an exempt organization. And as such, tax exempt, it doesn't pay tax on the gain when the property is sold. However, CRTs have a little bit of a quirk. We do track what would have been taxable gain, and we accumulate those layers. And those layers of income items, and they're kind of ranked by the tax rate you would pay, of the income the CRAT has not paid tax on, you know, in prior years because of its exempt status, and when we make payments out under the annuity, in this case, Terminator Annuity Trust, they're deemed to carry out that income and generally going to carry out first the highest rate income that hasn't been carried out yet and then follow that with other income items. And only if you exhaust the entire income the credit previously recognized would you get a tax-free portion of your annuity distribution, which would be considered a return of your principal. So that's structurally how this works. And if you've ever worked with children major trusts, whether they were annuity trust or unit trust, you're probably very familiar with that concept as to how it works. And the flip side of that is, and this could be a deduction for either estate tax purposes, or it could be a deduction for income tax purposes, but you compute using IRS provided tables and rates, you compute the present value of that future interest that will go to the charity and you claim a current deduction. In this case that we're going to talk about, you know, the issue was, uh, you know, in this case, a income tax deduction. We talked about a case, the last one we talked about was a estate tax deduction. But it's basically the same either way. Whichever way you look at it, it's a question of the deduction, and the amount would also be the same. But as we noted when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, it was subject to very strict requirements. A couple of weeks ago, they accidentally, obviously accidentally ran afoul of the requirements uh, because there was provision in the CRT, you may remember in the CRAT, that allowed a payout to be the actual income of the CRAT if it was higher than the minimum uh, distribution required. And the catch was it was wildly unlikely the CRAT would ever have that level of income that would have been more than 50000 that the annuity was, but that blew up the crack. Well, this time, we're not going to talk about blowing it up by accident using you know, a structure that wasn't involved. In this case, the taxpayers had been told about a marketed program that claimed to eliminate their entire tax on gain. And these guys had very low basis, high-value property that they were about to sell. And so they were sitting on about a $1.5 million gain. Well, they ran into or referred to individuals that were pushing this charitable remainder annuity trust concept. So they transferred real estate to a purported charitable remainder annuity trust. And again, with the CRAT, that real estate would go in. That wouldn't trigger a tax on transferring to the CRAT, even though we've exchanged the real estate for this annuity interest. However, what it would do is you know, and when the CRAT sells the property, they generate $1.5 million of gain. Again, not taxable in a CRAT because we don't pay tax at that level. Rather, in a CRAT, we're going to get that distribution of income coming down the line. But these guys said, no, 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 no. We, we got all this solved. That's not a problem. We're going to be able to work around this issue. 
So as the court told us in this case, this particular crad had some had an interesting bit in it. It had two different clauses for payouts. One of which said, and again, this goes back, you'd get the greater of, and if you remember two weeks ago, that right away would send bells off because you remember that was our problem then. You can only get the annuity interest. But let's ignore that for a second. You got the greater of 10% of the initial fair market value of the property. And that value was somewhere around 1650000 as recall the case. So let's say $165,000 or the payments received from one or more single premium immediate annuities purchased by the trustee. Now, the goal here was to buy the second because they were going to have a theory where buying the second one, um, you know, was going to essentially solve all these problems. Well, part of their theory would seem to have worked if you didn't do that. They had a couple of theories about why it wasn't taxable. Now, I think talking with people who have regularly worked with Kratz and Krutz, you know, and I've worked with them, it's like all of us are like, you're totally misunderstanding how these work. But... They're marketing it. It sounded good. They wrote a memo that if you understood Kratz, if you actually understood, read the law and were comfortable with the law, you immediately said, this is clearly not going to work. But again, it sounded good. It was, you know, it's kind of like, you know, asking chat, you know, chat GPT to write you a, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a justification for this, you know, if, if it was very, you know, it could sound good. And by the way, if you never use ChatGPT or one of those AI chat tools, they're very good at generating things that sound plausible, but can be just totally made up, right? Because their whole job is to sound plausible. Well, they had a memo that sounded plausible. We talked about this back in 2020 when the IRS issued a chief counsel advice that specifically went to rip apart a program, which I strongly suspect was exactly this one. That was being marketed because it's, you know, they're on the radar. And obviously these cases coming down last year and this year suggest that, yes, the IRS became aware of these programs, started looking for them, and then started running, you know, basically exams and eventually ends up in tax court on these cases. Right. So the Krat listed Albert and Gladys Gerhardt as the beneficiaries of the annuity amount. But the CRAD instrument also provided that neither the recipients nor their children have any right, title, or incident of ownership in any special purpose or single premium immediate annuity transferred to or purchased by the trustee. So clearly the CRAT would buy and own the annuity. The annuity would list the recipients, you know, they in essence they provided the payments that came from this annuity would be transferred out to Albert and Gladys, right, over that term. But they were not actually the people that owned the annuity. Now, confusion about this also gets into this mix because there's going to be two different theories. They're going to advance for why a very minimal amount of this payout to, you know, basically Albert and Gladys during the year was going to be considered taxable to them. Okay. So using the proceeds from the sales, they purchased a single premium immediate annuity from Symmetra Life Insurance Company for $1,537,822 in March of 2016. The contract identified Albert and Gladys's Kratt as the owner of the SPIA, but listed Albert as the annuitant and Gladys as the joint annuitant. And out of this contract, Symmetra was required to pay an annuity of $311,708 to Albert and Gladys beginning on April 6, 2016, uh, each April 6 thereafter until five total payments were made. 
So as you might realize doing the math, they're basically going to get the equivalent of exactly what they had paid. You know, they're going to get all that money out. So what they sold the property for, they would get out. Now, the magic of this was that, in theory, somehow this became a non-taxable event, right? So although there was this million-plus, you know, gain layer, and actually, I guess the court ruled it was ordinary gain, too. Don't worry about that. That's a separate issue. The taxpayer did not any treat any of the payment as coming from that, whether capital or ordinary, it would have been taxable, just the rate would have mattered. But they were saying not, it wasn't taxable at all. That, that was kind of their background on this. Rather, they said the only income of the CRAT that would be carried out by any payments was the minor amount of, in, they called it interest, the minor amount of interest paid by the annuity. So they were taking, you know, so we paid a million five for an annuity. We get a 1099R from the insurance company. And it obviously is going to give us a certain amount of that is going to be recovery of basis and the rest be taxable. So a 1099R came out and it showed like 2,600, I think in $22 or somewhere in that range, I guess maybe double that one for each, but it showed a minor amount of interest compared to the total payout of over 300 grand. So they picked that up as interest income, but picked the entire rest up as a return of capital. Now, the IRS argued the entire return of basis, I say. The IRS said, no guys, Entire distribution is going to be taxable. Yes, that amount you're calling interest, the earnings on the annuity, which is income to the CRAT, not taxable to the CRAT, but goes in the layer. Yes, you're going to pay that every year, but the rest of what you're going to pay is going to be the income from that initial big gain on selling the property. And that's what the fight's over. Is there a taxable amount from the gain on the sale of the property? That was their argument. Now, as the court explained the law for Kratz, they said Congress has established specific ordering rules that govern characterization and reporting of annuity payments distributed by a Kratz to its income beneficiaries under 664B. And under this regime, distributions to the, to the income beneficiaries are deemed to have the following character be distributed in the following order. First, we distribute ordinary income to the extent the Kratz current and previously undistributed ordinary income. So again, we're keeping, we're keeping buckets here of income and we have an ordinary income bucket, and it'll first come out of that bucket. And that's either amounts that we incurred this year or that we previously have picked up and haven't distributed, you know, that remains undistributed in that bucket. The second bucket would be capital gain, right? And again, to the extent we hadn't previously picked that up, we'd pick that up. The third bucket is other income to the extent of the Kratz current and previously undistributed other income. And then finally, a non-taxable distribution of trust corpus. If we've run out of all this gain that the Kratz hadn't paid tax on, we've exhausted those buckets, then and only then do we pick it up as non-taxable. And this is found in IRC section 664B1-4. to That's where you're going to find these rules. Well, the taxpayers obviously said, ah, no, don't worry about that. That's not an issue, or at least they're, you know, they're, the promoters were saying that. And as the court notes, they resisted this straightforward analysis, and they're telling the code does a lot more than exempt them from paying tax. According to the taxpayers and taxpayers' counsel and the promoters, the code also relieves them from paying tax and distributions that were made possible by the CRAT's realization of built-in gains. And they tell us all taxable gains on the sale of assets contributed to the CRAT disappear and the full amount of the proceeds is converted to principal to be invested by the CRATs. And that, that was in their, basically, in their brief they filed, 
right? That was in there. In their view, it becomes obvious that Congress intended this treatment to promote charitable giving while offering large tax benefits as incentives. Now, either I and everyone else who has been doing this for decades has been totally wrong about how the law works, has been totally wrong in reading that, or maybe, just maybe, the promoters are totally wrong in how they read it. Well, the court's response to this was the gain-disappearing act that the Garrett's attribute to the Kratz is worthy of a pen and teller magic show. But it finds no support in the code, regulations, or case law. Probably not a good sign for you when they compare your analysis to a pen and teller magic show. That probably indicates the judge is being more than slightly sarcastic, and that's usually not a good sign for what's for the result in the case as we move forward. And in this case, it clearly wasn't a good sign. So what was their argument? Well, there really are two justifications they offered up separately for why it's not taxable. The first was that, you know, the basis of assets donated to a CRAD are equal to their fair market value. And they have that, that's in their brief. They're kind of arguing that the basis of the asset to the CRAT is a million five, right? You know, they're, they're saying the donor's basis is a moot point. The trustee of the CRAT has no way to know the cost basis, nor it is required to obtain such information. The tax court is very blunt here, saying straight out section 1015 of the code flatly contradicts their position. 1015 is the section of the code that governs the basis of an asset when a taxpayer acquires property via gift from another taxpayer. And if you remember, we have carryover basis in that case, subject to some adjustments for gift tax, subject to some quirky rules if there's a built-in loss, you know, but basically it's a carryover basis, right? And a real problem we have here is their claim that Section 1015 does not govern transfers to CRAT because it does not mention them is meritless. This is a mistake I see made many times. How many times have client asked you, show me where in the code it says X is taxable? Show me in the code where it says that the basis of an asset transferred to the CRAT, that's what they're arguing here, you know, is equal to the basis in the hands of the donor. And you're not going to find something worded that way exactly. What you are going to find, because this is how tax laws are written, is 1015 that says in general, you know, the general rule is, that when you transfer assets via gift, and this is clearly a gift, a transfer to a charity is a gift, right? It is still a gift, right? A gratuitous transfer, at least. So for the portion of it the charity gets, you're going to qualify for that. The CRAT qualifies for this. That's a gift. And now the issue does not become, oh, but 1015 never says specifically that, you know, giving property to a CRAT triggers this. Well, 1015 never says specifically Giving this property to your great granddaughter, you know, your great granddaughter Marie, who was born two weeks ago, you know, yeah, it, it never mentioned Marie, and it doesn't say that. The law won't. It has a general rule. You need to look for an exception, and the court makes it very clear. Nothing in the text of the provision excludes Kratz from its scope. They don't need the the bar, burden here is not for the government to show that there's a there's something written in the 1015 that says this applies to crats they won't list every single situation your goal is you have 1015 says it applies just broadly whenever there's a transfer it applies except as otherwise provided you need to find otherwise provided 
And as the court's noting here, the taxpayers never pointed out an otherwise provided. Because, honestly, it doesn't exist. That's why they didn't do it. So the court rejected this line, but they do have another backup here, right? They also try to hide behind the taxation of annuities in Section 72. Remember that 1099-R, and there's no question, there was a 1099-R issued by the insurance company, right? The insurance company got a check for a million five. They gave the immediate annuity, and they're going to pay it out over five years. So the overwhelming majority of the money coming out over that five years is going to be the return of basis, with a minor amount of earnings coming out on top of it from the annuity. Well, now they're saying, see, it's an annuity. It's coming out from there. It is, you know, it's the, it's the annuity from the, uh, essentially, the Symmetra Life Insurance Company, and there's a tax amount on the 1099. What's the problem? That's an annuity. This is a Chevrolet Annuity Trust. That's a tax amount. The court said, you guys had this all fouled up, right? Any amounts paid by Symmetra's directed by the Kratz constitute amount distributed by the Krat for purposes of 664B. So we're not worried about what the taxable amount from what the amount taxable to the trust, right, who owned the policy, who was going to be the one who was going to be deemed to pick up the income. That's not relevant. That 1099 is an irrelevant document because they just turned around and obviously we directly paid it. But they're saying for practical purposes, it's paying a liability of the CRAT. And that liability of the CRAT was to pay this out and that would carry out the income under the standard CRAT rules. It's just like, you know, if, if you bought a car, let's say on a, you know, let's say you buy a car, you borrow, you know, you basically get 100% financed on a loan. And instead of paying the loan, you turn around and you go get an annuity that's going to pay out monthly. And you just have that go to, you know, the bank, right? And it'll pay them every month. Well, that's just paying the auto loan on your behalf that is not going to magically change this whole thing into something different from their perspective. Or let's say if the car dealer covered it, you know, it wouldn't suddenly make it a non-taxable event for the car dealer, right? It's one of those things. Any amounts paid is considered to be this. Section 72 isn't relevant because the insurance company is not paying an annuity to the Gerhards. It is rather that annuity is paying for a stream of income governed by a totally different code section from the crack. You can't just put annuity here and magically have it get fixed under these rules. And that's what they're trying to claim, right? The IRS had written a memo. I already told you about this type of transaction we discussed back in 2020. The marketing materials thoroughly confuse the issue. If you go back to that one we recorded in 2020, and you know, you just look on, you can scan our website, you know, looking site colon currentfortaxdevelopments.com and just look for CRAT, you know, CRAT annuity right? You know, an IRS memo, and you should find the write-up of this shelter. And you'll find out that, yes, it was seen to be a nice, long, very much, you know, what I say, a chat GPT style memo, where chat GPT has no clue about the topic that you asked it about. So it's just filling in from nowhere. And that's pretty much how it writes. That means, be careful, why they do stuff like this is part of the reason why they put documents out like this, to be honest, is to intimidate advisors. What they're trying to do is get you, if you're not used to working with CRATs, as I said, any of us that ever worked with Chairmaker Annuity Trust or Chairmaker Unit Trust would read that and go, that's a bunch of garbage. It doesn't work that way, guys. That's not how this happens. 
So we're not going to talk about that, right? That simply is how it works. It works differently. They want to intimidate somebody, let's say, who hasn't had any work with crats or cruts, and your client comes in and says, well, I just went to this guy, and they recommended my financial advisor, whoever recommended I talk to them, and they're saying, and here's this big, long, you know, opinion piece that says why this works and why haven't you ever told me about this, et cetera, et cetera, and intimidate you to follow it. Be careful. When that blows up, don't be surprised if you, as the tax advisor who didn't wave them off of this because you were intimidated and you thought, well, they're relying on this. No, suddenly they're going to be relying on you. And that, that's going to be the side. Be very careful in this area. It's a sad one, but it is the way it worked. Okay, let's talk about IRS Chief Counsel Advice 2023-16008 that came out on April the 21st. Now, this deals with the question of does a change of does a change from proof of work to proof of stake of a cryptocurrency create a taxable event for those holding the currency at the date the change takes place? And this question was arisen. Now, we've seen moves out of proof of, should say proof of work, not proof of stake, for various reasons. Uh, basically, proof of work, uh, it's become more and more difficult to make the mining costs work. They become more expensive. If you're not aware, the way Bitcoin originally worked and the way most cryptos originally worked was this concept called proof of work. We need to have people who verify the blockchain. You know, it works by consensus. Now, people are not just going to verify the blockchain out of disinterested, you know, you know, just, just sign it, generosity. That's, you're not going to be able to develop a very robust or very useful blockchain system by doing that. So rather, what we end up doing is go for this idea called a proof of work, where, in essence, you solve a problem. And the first one to solve that problem, and you solve a problem which allows you to put things back on the blockchain, and it gets a little more complicated, and there are various ways that we have people confirm, and we get the consensus. But as long as the consensus backs you up, and you are the one to solve this problem as we go to add each item, each block to the blockchain, uh, you would be awarded so much cryptocurrency. Now, the problem is the way it was designed, those problems got progressively harder as we had more and more, you know, cryptocurrency in circulation, the idea being not to end up with a runaway inflationary structure uh, where we'd have too much Bitcoin going into the system. But the problem was we now have so much out there that's become very extremely hard to solve these problems. They've been extremely hard problems. And again, need to be the first. And so this become bigger and bigger mining rigs that have more and more power and frankly only make economic sense to run if you're in some place with extremely inexpensive electrical power, right? It would be very dumb to have a big mining rig here in Phoenix because they generate tons of heat. And in the summer, and also electricity is not super cheap, so you have two problems. First thing is you're paying for the electricity. And number two, you're generating so much heat and you have to keep the machines cool enough so to overheat that it's going to be just impossible to make it work. And that raises the second problem that it's been, as you've been concerned about environmental issues, obviously there's concern about the flat out power consumed, even if we economically can make it work, which honestly right now, you know, like I said, unless you have very, very cheap power, it's not going to work. And there's been some problems where, where you do have super cheap file, usually hydroelectric power. Uh, you know, if the crypto miners show up, they just absorb all the output. 
So there's been a push to proof of stake. Proof of stake is where you put cryptocurrency up and you're risking that cryptocurrency if we discover that you are essentially, you know, approving things that shouldn't be approved. If that's true, then sorry, you know, you're going to lose your stake. But if you're in the stake and you've approved things and, you know, you're part of the consensus, essentially, you know, a certain, a certain particular random chunk, as I understand it, of the, you know, of the group with proof of stake will be awarded the cryptocurrency that previously was awarded on mining. And the concept there being, since it's random and it pretty much forces it all through the whole area, you're going to basically get it based on what you put in. So that's the idea of proof of stake, which is considered more sustainable, which is considered to get rid of the waste of time that is mining, to get rid of the fact that they were in fact having trouble buying uh, graphics cards because graphics cards used on computers were some of the best things for solving those problems. So yeah, it was causing issues. But the question then becomes, if I have, let, let's say, cryptocurrency A, and it was proof of work, but then we change underlying protocol, because remember, cryptocurrency is really just this kind of agreement among the group, and this protocol defines what it is. We're going to fundamentally change the protocol. Is that, for instance, an exchange of one asset for another? Of cryptocurrency A, that was a proof of work cryptocurrency for new cryptocurrency A that is a proof of stake cryptocurrency. Is that a taxable event? So the facts here is we have a K as a blockchain that uses distributed ledger technology to record transactions involving cryptocurrency according to their underlying protocol, right? We have that structured there. The blockchain protocol is a set of rules that includes a consensus mechanism for adding new blocks of transactions to K, including those involving units of C, which is going to be our cryptocurrency. Uh, participants in that successfully, that successfully add new blocks of transactions to K receive a block reward in accordance with the underlying protocol, right? We're paying you to participate there in this so we can get these things added. At a certain date, uh, we have a taxpayer pushes at 10 units of C and stores the private keys in an unhosted wallet. So it's not an exchange, not doing anything else. We just got in our private wallet, right? Which is sitting there with us. So we've got it. At a later date, K changes the consensus mechanism, use select who may validate transactions, and add blocks of transactions to the blockchain from a proof of work to a proof of stake, the protocol upgrade. Right? There is where our change takes place. Now, after the protocol upgrade on date two, the protocol requires the transactions be validated and that new blocks be added to the blockchain exclusive through the uh, basically the you know, proof of stake consensus mechanism. Now, this upgrade does not affect or change any transactions of blocks prior to date D. Everything that, that was approved on the blockchain using proof of work stays unchanged. New blocks will be added pursuant to the change protocol. The units of the cryptocurrency remained unchanged following the upgrade. And, you know, the taxpayer continues to hold the same 10 units of C in that same wallet, right, offline that they had before. They do not receive any cash, services, or property, including additional units to see as a result of protocol upgrade. Our question is, is this a taxable event? Now, there are two possible theories about why it could be taxable. It could be an exchange of one type of asset for another. The proof of work C for the proof of stake C. Right? So we exchange. They're, they're different. They're different because the protocol is different. There is a concern. The IRS might look at that. Or it could just be some other form of income. Section 61 a very broad definition of what's income, um, you know, is there some other type of income this could be? So there was a concern the IRS might do that. So we have this memorandum issued 
uh, chief counsel advice to address the matter. And generally, you're going to like the answer. I'll phrase it that way, but let's go here. Now, as they say, the protocol upgrade affects consensus mechanisms by which future transactions are validated and added to the block. Doesn't alter anything in the past, doesn't alter previous blocks, doesn't alter your 10 units of C. You still have that. Existing units remained unchanged, and there's no exchange. So we called the same units. After the upgrade, the protocol upgrade does not result in a realization event from which you'd have a gain or loss on your existing 10 units of C. You still hold the same thing they're going to rule after the upgrade. It's not considered a new cryptocurrency that magically appeared. It's still the old cryptocurrency, just our proof. We've gone from proof of work to proof of stake. Similarly, there is no accession to wealth. That is a term used often in 61. You need to have an accession to wealth. That's what income is considered to be an accession to wealth of some sort. Uh, there are 10 units of C remained unchanged after the upgrade. He doesn't derive any separate economic benefits from cash, services, or other property, including other cryptocurrencies from it. In the absence of an accession to wealth to the taxpayer, the protocol upgrade does not result in an income inclusion event within the meaning of Section 61A. So basically, guys, not a taxable event. We have another cryptocurrency ruling to talk about this week. Notice 2023-34, issued on April the 24th, and this modifies Notice 2014-21. You might think, well, we know there were a lot of unanswered questions from back then about how crypto works tax-wise, so is this going to answer all those things you've been wanting forever? Not really. It's going to make a very minor change. Uh, to the notice 2014-21. And actually, it's not going to change the result. It's going to change a couple of sentences in the justification and description and back, really just in the background. It's not going to change the result. The IRS deciding to revise notice 2014-21 uh, that treated Bitcoin as property rather than foreign currency. And it had a background discussion and why Bitcoin was not considered to be a foreign currency. And one of the things they discussed in there when they did that was said, well, it's not legal tender. But since that notice was issued back in 2014, at least two countries, El Salvador and the Central African Republic, have now recognized it as legal tender in their country. You can use it. You know, it is legal tender. And that's really gone really well in El Salvador. But, you know, hey, it still is legal tender. So the question becomes, well, since your notice 2014-21 was saying it's not legal tender, Right. Therefore, it's not foreign currency. Does this change it? You know, and now do we have foreign currency? And is that what governs the tax treatment of this and not the property rules that we've seen before? Well, you know, so the question is, is it going to change the position? Quick answer. It's going to be no. But let's talk about what they said. Right. They did say the sentence in the background section of 2014-21 saying that virtual currency does not have legal tender status in any jurisdiction is no longer accurate as to Bitcoin. Because of that, they have taken that sentence out of there. So it doesn't say it's not legal tender. Right. So it's there. It can be done. But they do point out and then they rephrase one thing. They feel that you might have misinterpreted overstating similarity between convertible virtual currency and real currency because use of convertible virtual currency, including Bitcoin, to perform real currency functions is limited. They're going to now put that into the note and that's going to be their basis now. It's not that it's not recognized as legal tender anywhere. Obviously, it is in at least two countries and maybe some others will add. But now we're going to have a different background. But at the end of the day, 
you know, it says in certain contracts, virtual currency may serve one or more functions of real currency in that case. But the use of virtual currency to perform real currency functions is limited. And they're going to say that limitation means you cannot consider it foreign currency for U.S. tax purposes. Okay. So they changed some details, but at the end of the day, they do not change their final answer. You know, especially on whether it should be taxed under the foreign currency rules. They're saying, no, it's property. Every time you dispose of Bitcoin, whether it is to buy something, whether it is to convert it to dollars, whatever it is, whether it's to convert it to Ethereum, it's a taxable transaction with a calculated gain or loss on the transaction. And they say specifically question and question answer number two in the 2014 notice is not changed. Now, what that question said is virtual currency treats a currency for purpose of determining whether a transaction results in a foreign currency gain or loss under U.S. federal tax law. That answer remains unchanged. No, under currently applicable law, virtual currency is not treated as currency that could generate foreign currency gain or loss for U.S. federal tax purposes. So we have no change in that underlying structure. Okay, finally this week, let's talk about the case of Gage versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2023-47. This case came down on April the 12th. Finally got around to actually being able to write it up enough to, uh, you know, go over it in the discussion. So I want to talk about this case as we can. Obviously, it also occurred during the rush up to the 1040 to filing date. So I was a little busy at that point. So I am working now. Now, we're looking at the question of when can a cash basis taxpayer deduct a payment? In this particular case, the issue involved settling a legal claim against the taxpayer being brought by a federal agency. Okay. Now, their counsel and the agency's counsel had been discussing. They had apparently come to a preliminary agreement to settle the matter for the uh, gauges paying a sum of money over to the federal agency. Now, prior to the end of 2012, in late December 2012, the Gages transferred funds to their attorney. They bought a cashier's check. So they basically were out the money, right? It's cashier's check, you're out the money. Take it out of your bank account. It's in a cashier's check. You hand the cashier's check to your attorney, and the attorney is going to then deliver it to supposedly the other party, and that's going to make the settlement go. And that was the structure to be used. So their theory was that you know they want that deduction in 2012. Okay, so what was the fact pattern here? What was the housing areas of urban development? HUD filed a complaint against them. They tended to sell the amount in December 2012 and gave their lawyer a cashier's check for the agreed amount for the end of the year. The government sometimes works slowly, and as they say, the tentative settlement agreement didn't become final until March of 2013. Shortly after that, the lawyer delivered the check. You probably can now anticipate what our problem is, right? They took the money out. They got a cashier's check. They had no ability to use that money effectively any longer. It was in their attorney's hands to be delivered to the other side, assuming that, you know, when we finally got the settlement agreement done. When they filed the return for 2012, they claimed a business loss deduction for the amount of the settlement. Now, the court did not officially go into whether or not this would have been a deductible payment when paid. The IRS was arguing it wouldn't have been. Uh, the court eventually decided this on an issue on the fact that they couldn't get a deduction for 2012 because that wasn't the year of deduction. So, and 2013 wasn't before them. So they kind of just said, we're not going to decide that issue. But indirectly, when talking about whether the gauges should be penalized, they strongly suggest that the amount will be deductible under their facts. You can read the case 
And you'll see what I mean about that. But it's very clear on the penalty discussion that the court is very sympathetic to this being a deductible amount, not a, not a penalty that could not be deducted by them on their return. Okay. Negotiations ensued after the claim was filed by August 2012. It looked like the case would settle. The Gages, uh, other owners of the group they were involved with in Council of the United States, and they've agreed to settle for $1.75 million, of which they would pay $875,000. Now, that deal was expressly conditioned upon final approval by the Department of Justice, but as the court said, it must have looked pretty likely the deal would work out. The magistrate judge who supervised the settlement talks entered an order in which he noted the settlement conference was held and the settlement was contingent upon acceptance approval by the Department of Justice. The district court then entered an administrative closing order, which terminated the suit without prejudice. So all this took place, and the DOJ has not yet approved this settlement. But as I say, the, you know, the district court, the magistrate, then the district court is acting essentially as if, yeah, this is all settled. We're done, right? The rest of this is merely who cares. You know, it's merely, you know, minor paper shuffling that will take place. On December 27th, so just before the end of the year, they delivered a cashier's check measure 875. They purchased it and delivered it to their lawyer. The lawyer emailed the U.S. attorney, represented the government, to inform the check would soon be delivered. Uh, you know, the assistant attorney general, however, explained the United States does not have the authority to receive the cashier's check before the settlement was approved by HUD. So now the attorney has this check, cashier's check. He goes ahead and he continues to hold it. So it's not been given back to the gauges. It's not back in their bank account. Uh, he's holding it now. Right? They reviewed the settlement agreement and finally signed it in March of 2013. And the attorney finally delivered the cashier's check dated December 27th to the United States on March 18th, 2023 or 2013, I should say. So now the question becomes, what is the year for deduction assuming the payment was deductible? Okay. So can they deduct it in 2012 or must they wait till 2013? That was the key question before us on these facts. Okay. Now the court describes the basic rules here. They are cash basis taxpayers. They can take deductions only when they're actually paid, not when they're really incurred. Okay. And for checks for payments by checks, the tax law treats the payment by check as made when the check is delivered. If it's dated in one year but cash in a later year, a deduction will not be allowed absent proof of delivery in the year of the deduction. That's under the case of Reynolds v. Commissioner, is what they're saying here. So you can't just write a check, stick it in your desk drawer, and then sometime in mid-January hand it to the other party. That's not a deductible payment on the cash basis. But if you do write the check, deliver it to the other party before the end of December, and you can prove it was delivered before the end of December, then you're allowed to treat that as paid in the prior year. And generally, if you can establish under the mailbox rules, we'll assume delivery occurs. So generally, we're looking at that same type of proof. You know, I sent it out prior to the end of the year. The fact that they might not have cashed it for two weeks because, hey, guess what? You know, recipients of money have an, or cash basis have an interesting tendency of just not opening mail, you know, toward the end of the year. So it's, you know, deductions, you know, deposits slow down that year. Part I'm sure they'll argue that to a large extent it's because, uh, you know, weather staff was gone, etc. They weren't there, whatever. Still doesn't really work. If you had the check, it's still income, regardless whether you deposit or not. But that's how things go. Okay, so the question becomes, 
did they have actual did they have delivery in this case? Well, seems like kind of obvious. They did not themselves deliver it to the government by the end of 2012. They gave it to the attorney to deliver it to the government when the sum was finally approved. Now, as the court said, there's even a question here as to whether, you know, uh, owed anything out of the settlement at all before it was approved. So even the government taken the check, you know, but say we'll take it and we'll hold it, but subject to us approving it, you know, the court indicates there may be a real question there about whether there was even an accrued liability at that point that existed, any sort of liability. And again, if there's no liability and you're just prepaying things you might owe in the future, that's also generally not going to be deductible. That'd be a different issue. Everybody agrees it was finally delivered in cash in March of 2013. That's no discussion. So the record's very clear. The, the actual delivery from the attorney was made in 2013, not 2012. Now, the court says that should settle it, right? Actual delivery is the problem here, as we noted. That didn't take place. Now, they however argue under Oklahoma law, a payment is made when there is a tender of payment. And they say when they purchased cashier's check delivered to the attorney, who offered to give it to the U.S. attorney, that was considered a tender of payment. And as such, it would be considered to be paid under, they said, Oklahoma state law. Now, they argue under Oklahoma law, this uncontested sequence of events is a tender of payment, and therefore that, that tender of payment should control the federal result. Unfortunately, the court didn't go along with them there. They said, we don't need to review Oklahoma law because Wisconsin delivery check made some of the federal lawsuit brought by the federal government is, the court holds, a matter of federal and not state law. Now, this is interesting because they don't say what the issue would be if this was, let's say, either not in federal court or did not involve a federal agency, right? Wasn't brought by the federal government. Uh, that's an interesting discussion that they just figure they need to decide or talk about. And also, it would obviously, if you're going to have a shot, you're going to be able to show the state law would consider it the same. The tender of payment is enough to consider it paid. Again, the court didn't look at that. They said federal law governs this, and federal law very clearly says that until the until the U.S. government had agreed, they said, look, it's both a general federal rule that wouldn't count until the other party takes the check, and secondly, they said it was a contractual issue. A settlement agreement is a contract, and this contract provided that the settlement didn't count, and this would this payment would not constitute a settlement payment until the Department of Justice approved it. And they said, well, that's contingent, right? And so until they approve it, you're not liable. And basically, it couldn't be paid before that. Now, as I said, for penalties, the court said, we don't think they should be penalized for having claimed this big deduction. Pretty big deduction. Uh, you know, even though they're going to have to pay the tax and the interest, they don't need to pay the penalties. And this was where the court decided under the, under the fact pattern, which you can read, they decide, yeah, we, we think this would be a deductible kind of, we, we strongly suspect this would be a deductible payment. Even if it, you know, and we don't think it's a penalty, so we think that it would still be okay. So we're fine with that. That's not our problem. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of May the 1st, 2023. Hey, we're in May. Uh, don't forget the not-for-profit stuff all comes due on May 15th, so keep that in mind for all your fun extensions. Uh, and get that part together. Uh, we'll also, you know, so that's coming up. We always love not-for-profits. That's one last month. So if you do a lot of 990s, I'm sure you're thrilled. 
about that. So you remember that extension is coming up. One more extension run uh, for those in the 990 realm. I will be you know, checking in online as I normally do. So you can find me online uh, at the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. And you also can find me, you know, looking at Idaho's groups. Uh, you know, you can also email me if you have questions, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. Otherwise, we look forward to talking to you next week. See what comes up as we enter the month of May and find out what's going on in federal taxes and what we might find out going forward. So I'll see you next week for here, here on Current Federal Tax Developments.